This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Join Justin Townsend and the Harvesting Nature crew as they explore the world of cooking wild fish and game while sharing recipes, tips, tricks, and lessons learned from their pursuit of wild food. We sure hope you ate before the show, because you're going to leave hungry. This is the Wild Fish and Game Podcast. We are live. All right, cool. Hey, everybody, welcome back to Harvest of Nature's Wild Fishing Game Podcast. You got your host here, Justin Townsend. And uh, today we got a, another great guest uh, to have a, a great conversation with. And I'm going to introduce them here in just a moment. But uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of updates about what's going on sort of in my world. And then uh, I'm going to let Corey pass on some updates and we'll we'll go there. So uh, as far as me... Uh, for those that are, are watching, which is two individuals in this podcast, no one else is watching me. I'm like sunburnt from my eyes down. Uh, I spent a day on the water yesterday and uh, uh, got a good amount of sun uh, while out fishing in the backcountry here in the Florida Keys. So uh, great trip. I can't wait to share all the awesome content and recipes and food from that little excursion with you all, which will be coming up uh, soon. I'll say sooner rather than later. I'm not going to give away dates or make promises, but it's coming down the road. Um, also, uh, looking forward to spring bear coming up and uh, the possibility of doing some spring turkey um, in Florida and, and maybe some other places, so we'll see. But uh, that that's quickly approaching us as, uh, as the, I guess, quote-unquote, thunder chicken season arrives. Um, but yeah, Corey, what updates you got? Um, not a whole lot going on here. The, uh, I think our ice fishing season is pretty much over with. We actually went shed hunting after, uh, after work and school today. And my wife was able to find a little one today. So first one of the season. Oh, nice. But now I'm going to start focusing on, uh, scouting for turkeys and 
start getting out there in the mornings and evenings, see if I can locate some flocks. So looking forward to that. Looking forward to the spring weather. Yeah. What is it? Is it uh, warming up there? Yeah, we were, we've been in like the 30s and 40s this week. So uh, it's warm comparatively to what we've had. Ooh, still cold. But <laughs> all right. Well, uh, do you want to talk about what's going on in the world of the Adventures for Food podcast? We're still recording episodes. Um, we have a bunch of recordings all lined up, um, and they are actually uh, listeners. Harvest, harvesting the Wild Fishing Game podcast listeners have wrote in and said they had stories to tell. So I'm going to put the invite out to to all the listeners that if you have a story to tell that you'd like to tell on the Adventures for Food series, please email what's cooking at harvestingnature.com. We'd love to hear your stories. Yeah, absolutely. We'd love to hear them and share them too. Uh, if you think something's cool, something unique, it doesn't have to be a success story either. Like um, hunting and fishing stories, although many will say are weighed in success or failure, I think it's uh, there's a lot of cool things to share out there no matter what the outcome is. So, yeah, and uh, I'll go ahead and plug our Facebook community page. Go over, head over to Facebook and check that out. So it's uh, the Wild Fishing Game community. Go ahead and join, and once you join, invite some folks to join too. Cool place to share tips, tricks, recipes, all that stuff, and interact with uh, with the Harvesting Nature crew pretty much on a day-to-day basis, actually. So, uh, and also, too, our, our friends over at Allen Company offered a great coupon for our listeners so if you go over to their website, shop some great products. If you look in your closet or drawers, I'm I'm almost certain you probably have something made by Allen Company already. Uh, great products that are equally dependable. And uh, click over to their website. Brand new website. Looks great. And uh, when you check out, punch in that Harvest 10 code, and I'll give you 10% off your order. Website is buyallen.com. B-Y-A-L-L-E-N.com. There you go by allen.com so all right i'm gonna go ahead and introduce our guests so we can get into the meat of the conversation uh so our guest today is a writer hunter angler forager and wild cook he's been nominated for a james beard award for best web series on location and visual and technical excellence for the series from the wild a journey in wild food welcome kevin coswin thanks Thanks for having me. I hope I said that right. You did, actually. Right on. Well done. Woo! Nice. Thank you. <laughs> Good start. Good start. <laughs> Welcome to uh, the Wild Fishing Game Podcast. If you could tell us tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, uh, where you spend most of your time, and, and kind of how you got into the outdoors. Sure. Um, wow. Uh, I, I guess to kind of start a bit from the beginning, I, I do um, film for a living, so I actually work in mostly in the world of food and pointing cameras at things. Um, lots of TV lately. We have got a show on PBS called uh, Les Stroud's Wild Harvest with Les Stroud's Riverman guy and good friend of mine. And I've uh, got From the Wild, so we've been, which is on um, network television in Canada. So I'm from Western Canada. I'm in Edmonton. Uh, we do most of our hunting, fishing, foraging um, in Western Canada. So uh, I'm blessed to live in a spot where we have access to the boreal uh, in a couple weeks we're up 
in the Rockies, way up in the Rockies uh, near Jasper, Banff, that kind of area, um, we hunt pronghorn in the grasslands and we have badlands that look kind of like Utah. And then we've got the Pacific Ocean, the Pacific Northwest uh, to the west of us. So we do a lot of ocean uh, foraging and fishing uh, there too. So we have kind of, uh, the more I've traveled for my work, the more I've realized we're really, really lucky to, to be where I am. I grew up hunting and fishing and foraging, um, grew up on moose meat primarily. And uh, I would say that we, we picked mushrooms, we picked fruit, we picked, we hunted, but, but like one bird, we, we ate ruffed grouse and one ungulate, we ate, uh, moose and one berry, highbush cranberry or viburnum trilobum. And since then, uh, I've ended up in this really, uh, unexpected career path of, exploring the intersection of wild food and culinary because I work a lot in the international culinary scene, I guess, uh, with uh, fairly posh chefs and Michelin starred and everything uh, from kind of around the world. So uh, we have culinary guests primarily. It's not so much about or ever about really hunting a, a trophy of any kind other than uh, the destination on our show is, is a plate of food. So uh, that's kind of what I do and my background. Cool. I, I think that's a it's such a, a interesting way you put it at the end. I really like that. Like the destination is the plate, which is cool. Yeah, yeah, that really has has been the guiding force behind what we've done, um, and and for a few reasons. One of which is because the you know backup. We're in season eight of the of the series right now. Uh, we started back up kind of when Mediator was being born, and before that, there wasn't really a lot of kind of culinary content. Uh, in the world of hunting and fishing, especially, never mind foraging, which is still pretty niche. But um, yeah, there was kind of just a gaping hole in exploring what the kind of food potential was because big game had been for a lot of years kind of, you know, the cookery of it was pretty banal. And uh, people like Hank Shaw, who started since I did down, on, he's a food writer in California. Um, there's just been a ton of people who've blown open kind of the food and, and wild food scene, which is great. Um, but we were one of those people up in Canada doing the job here. Awesome. I think it's cool. Yeah, we've had we've had Hank on the show. We had some great conversations. Definitely like one of the, I would say, in, in the States, one of the the founding leaders of the, the wild food movements and sort of getting a lot of people. I know he was, his book was one of the first ones I ever purchased, uh, which was cool. So it opened up a, a, a lot of gateway uh, for many, many people. Yeah, a fun fact of the day for that. With Hank is that uh, when I first started writing online um, about wild food, Hank was still a political journalist and was commenting on my <laughs> blog back in the day. And uh, he, I was encouraging him, like, dude, you know a lot about this. You should write about food. And, and ta-da, Hank's now. I, I, Hank has been on our show a few times too. So, And here he is uh, well down a different career path, as am I. I'm formerly finance. I spent 14 wow. years in the world of finance. So That's awesome, yeah. Very different world, but uh, a um, fun one. It's crazy. I, I love to hear people's stories. It's like everybody moves around until you sort of find a way to do do what you really enjoy, which is awesome. So I want to talk a little bit about recipes. I, I admit that I've been stalking you a little bit on your Instagram, but uh, there's some great content there. And uh, I, I think Corey shared it with me first was the uh, your buck neck confit, uh, the, the picture. So I kind of wanted to, to dive a little deeper into that and, and sort of hear your thoughts and ask some questions of course yeah uh, just as an in intro um that dish i'm glad you're into it because i'm that was really proud of that one uh you know we, we do a lot of cookery in the field that is 
I don't know, just more relatable and easy. And, and this one was a bit challenging in that I had shot a buck. It was a mature buck. We usually shoot younger age class animals, um, kind of have been arguing for years that in the world of agriculture, we eat young animals. And in the world of, of wild game, we tend to mm-hmm. harvest old animals and instead of selecting young ones, which are typically a better food outcome. Anyway, uh, this year I'd shot a, a, a bigger, more mature white tail buck. And um, in trying to decide what to do to, uh, I guess, best represent that animal, um, I was also butchering a couple does, a mule doe and a, a white tailed doe, and realized that the neck size is, was a massively different factor uh, on a buck. Uh, last year, we boned out 22 pounds of boneless meat off of a mule deer neck. And a doe might have, I don't know, two to three pounds. So it's a huge difference. So I thought, well, I'm going to, I'm going to do something with his neck. I'm going to cook it low and slow as, as one should do. Uh, and this buck also had a ton of fat on it. And so, uh, as Hank, Sean, and I have discussed in the past, uh, you should, you know, give it a, give it a warm up in a pan and smell it and make sure it's, it's kind of got the flavor profile that you'll be happy with. And in this case it did. And I had tons of it. Like I had, uh, I filled a, a small I guess a medium sized pot. So I probably had about oh, wow. four liters or a gallon of it. And, uh, yeah. And so in went the, in went the neck and I, I cooked it f- slow for hours and hours and hours until a, the meat was fork tender and pulling, pulling apart and knew that the fail point in this, in this idea was if I couldn't get the waxy fat off of it, uh, that the mouthfeel would be mm-hmm. unpleasant so the dis- the idea was to take it then and bring it to we went and actually started a fire right where we harvested that deer in the bush and then uh grilled grilled that piece of neck and it got really crispy kind of potato chip crispy on the outside and all the fat rendered off and we pulled it and put it on top of a Ooh baked potato that was cooked in the fire with sour cream and pickled red onions and jalapenos and um oh i forget we had it's just it was a killer it was a killer dish and and it made me so happy that it actually turned out because the concept really made sense uh technically and uh sometimes those things mm-hmm. still fail despite you know making sense in your head but in this case it really 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 worked so it meant for me that whitetail fat isn't just bird food in in the future that whitetail fat can be you know put directly to use because if it is left on in your in your freezer it is gross after time it goes rancid and i'm particularly not a fan of rancid fat yeah <laughs> um and so it's it's pretty perishable as you know uh, so it means that the, the fat goes into a confit pot and you confit the heck out of like neck cuts and shoulder cuts and shanks and whatever, and enjoy the heck out of that because it's such a unique treat that I've never, having done this for a long time, I've never, I've never eaten that before. I think it's great. Cause it, it's definitely like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it at the top for something that I would immediately think to do. Uh, you know, especially like you get, you get in the. Yeah, you right, like me neither. Like, all right, I'm processing and prioritizing like what cuts I need to make, what needs to go where, what needs to get stored quickly or not stored quickly or aged or you know, like the whole process. So I I really respect uh, sort of that out of the box thinking to do it quick and then uh, make the decision to go with it. And I, I think it's a really good tip that you shared, uh, and I hope the listeners caught it. But saying like taking the fat putting it in a pan, warming it up and and giving it the smell test and kind of, and that understands, uh, helps you understand sort of the relationship of how the flavor is going to come out uh, from that fat. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's important. And I think uh, the same could be said for waterfowl, actually. I have the same approach for geese. But um, sur- I guess kind of surprisingly, the the flavor of, of deer fat is actually pretty pleasant. Um, it's just when it, I think we often experience it mm-hmm. when it's off. And so that's kind of what's in our head is what deer fat should be. But when it's fresh, it's pretty great. But it does taste. It, it does have a mouthfeel of a candle. Let's make no mistake about that. You do have to figure <laughs> out how to, how to mitigate that. I don't recommend it. Ice cream scooping it. Nope. <laughs> no. Agreed. So, do you think it, in in the world of talking fats, and I, I spent a lot of time talking uh, uh, last episode recorded uh, about fats, but um, do you think that as far as uh, as venison fat goes, that it's very diet based as far as the flavor and, and kind of what it comes out in your experience? That's a good question. Um, and I'm going to say I don't know entirely. I mean, these deer were eating oats yeah. uh, at the time. Um, you know, like with the with the fat taste different. There, I've been to that field recently, and they're not eating oats anymore. They're just browsing right now. So maybe maybe the fat tastes different now if they're feeding on willow and the tops of fruit and hazelnut and that kind of stuff. So I I don't know. Um, it's a good question. Um, as you know, with black bears, that's certainly a thing here. You pay attention mm-hmm. to that. Um, but uh, with deer, I'm not sure. The the approach and the thought behind what I was thinking is is sort of. You know, in North America, there's the big debate of like mule deer versus white-tailed deer. So I kind of want to table that as far as like two types of deer, right? And I, I'm looking more at diet uh, and the diet of white-tailed deer and even mule deer, I think, vary uh, depending on the environment in which they have inhabit. Like that's – there's no doubt about that. Like they're going to eat different based on what's available to them. Like deer that eat off a cornfield, deer that eat off sage – flats or you know whatever food they have and i I don't know i've been really into sort of trying to look more into how the the diet of an animal affects the flavor and it's something very uh i find it interesting but it's hard to pinpoint too because there's so many variables too like age plays into effect and all the other factors Mm -hmm. i could speak to that a little bit because we have a unique opportunity here in the world of white-tailed deer as an example um we harvest white-tailed deer in the grasslands uh which is like flat prairie where there's actually bison and pronghorn and then we Mm -hmm. also harvest most of the deer uh, that we shoot the white tails are up in the boreal forest where there's no crop they're not feeding on agriculture at all they're eating uh whatever's in the forest that's it and i mean forest for like hundreds of kilometers and that's there's just nothing for agriculture. So I would, and I wouldn't say that I've seen a big flavor difference between those two locations. Um, like you say, there's, there's um, other factors with age class and that kind of thing. But um, on the whole, I wouldn't say that white-tailed deer are as responsive to feed as, as say, like we, like I mentioned, black bears, which absolutely are. And, and, and would be a completely, uh, you know, you select where you're hunting those things for sure. When you're talking about food. Yep, absolutely. Uh, I'm excited. I'm doing my first, uh, well, not my first black bear hunt, my first fully planned black bear hunt coming up uh, in a couple months out in Oregon. So it's all uh, oh, right on. Yeah, looking for, looking for some spring bears. Hopefully, uh, uh, hopefully the berries are in at the same time too. So I'm kind of looking to do a little pairing with that as well. Cool. Yeah, we do. Um, we. 
when we started the series, we were, I was very averse to, uh, bear hunting. I d- I'd never done it. Uh, I didn't want to point cameras at it and get crapped on, um, by haters. So I just decided, uh, no. And then got talked right into it. It's like, let's just have a look at what, what it's about. And so we, uh, got into, uh, a, two or three bears, I think on that first hunt and, uh, learned very quickly that they're quite a desirable food outcome. Actually, they're delicious eating. And, uh, ever since then, we, I think last spring we harvested four and, and we, so we, we harvest about three, four bears a year now, uh, both spring and in the fall. So it's become a real staple for us, which was just not expected. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the bear that I have had, I've had, you know, um, meat given to me by friends, like from up in Alaska and stuff. And, and the meat's been phenomenal. And so I'm, uh, I'm excited to, to go down that path. So. Good. Enjoy it. Enjoy the path. <laughs> we'll see. I don't know. I've heard some, uh, some discouraging things from the, as far as the terrain where we're going to be hunting at in Oregon, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, I'm up for a good challenge. <laughs> it's going to be hard, is it? Yeah, I think so. A lot of, uh, verticals and, you know, I live right now on like a three by five Island that's mostly flat. <laughs> so, um, we'll, we'll see if you get hit the Stairmaster. <laughs> Yeah, I hear you, man. We're that our next trip in a couple of weeks is going uh into the way up into the Rockies, into a valley perched in the Rockies, and we have to climb a kilometer back and nine hundred feet of elevation just to get to our camp from where we're fishing for lake trout. So it's gonna be a slog in and there's still a lot like knee deep snow and then it's Ooh. not warm, so it's it's gonna be a thing. <laughs> but it's okay. Wow. Those are fun adventures, man. Those are, yeah, they're that's, worth I doing. mean that's what makes it. That's what makes the you know Sort of, you've got the two different parts of it, the food part and the, the adventure part for sure. And it helps add to both. Um, Corey, do you have, do you have any questions about the, the confit as we were talking about it? No, it just, it looked like an amazing dish. So, you know, talking with you and Wade and Rachel, it gives me some, some confidence to try it on my own. Good. Do it. Yeah. I think all these uh, uh, the conversations and man, I, I hope I hope the listeners are catching on to the same of like uh, uh, this year. I want to put a lot of attention into sort of testing and, and using and and mess around with with different game fats too. I think it, it's a cool adventure uh, as well. So. One of the one of the more unusual ones that we've used in the past with good success is actually uh, moose bone marrow. That's one thing that we again put folded into quite a few dishes and over and over and over. It's just great, really, really good. How uh, so? Can you give me an example of how you incorporate that into a dish? I can. Uh, we had a bear bratwurst for a culinary event that had uh, moose marronaise on it. So it was a ma- mayonnaise wow. made out of moose, moose bone marrow. Uh, we've had like meat meatballs with where the fat component of the ground uh, moose was was marrow, and have had just like straight rendered marrow as uh, cooking fat, like you would use butter or lard or, mm-hmm. or anything like that. So, done a few different things, and like I said, every time it just kind of seems to work out. The other one we use a ton of is, bl- is black bear fat, mm-hmm. so that requires a, a good fall bear. But but um, but the, boy, that's a that's a treat too in the kitchen, as you know. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? 
That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So looking at some others, so I, I mentioned earlier, like before we started recording, pronghorn is definitely one of my favorite uh, favorite meat out there. Um and and you 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 affirm that as well from your side, but um correct yeah. So uh, for any of those who are listening, go go check out uh, Kevin's Instagram. There's a picture on there. I think like three or four lines down, you'll see it. It's, it's pretty beautiful. Um, and then you mentioned the uh, I think it was the low low bush cranberry or low bush cran as well in that dish. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that that was in that dish. Um, Maybe I was looking at but that was. Oh, there was lobus. There was lobus cranberry in the in the pronghorn burger. Yeah, there yep. was. Okay, there was a lobus cranberry jam. Yeah. Um. So first off, standard burger, ground fat, all that other jazz. Um, yeah, standard burger. Except it was made by by a guy who's on our team that is uh, owns a slaughterhouse and has dealt with more meat than you or I ever will. He's killed 10, 20,000 animals at the abattoir. And so he hand minced the pronghorn and, um, yeah, incorporated the fat, grilled it over some, actually the John, one of the guys on our crew had made the mountain ash charcoal at his farm (laughs) that it was grilled over. Um, and on and on it went. So yeah, we've, oh, and the bun was made from corn that John had grown and corn pieces in it to give it some texture that we had picked from the ground where the mule deer were feeding <laughs> out of oh, the wow. cornfield they were feeding it and wrecking the farm. So we just kind of pulled all kinds of stuff together on that episode. And actually that same day I made a dish out of uh, white fronted goose. And we, while we were shooting geese, we were picking the peas that the combine had left and then a bunch of peas had sprouted. So we had like fresh pea pods and pea flowers and pea tendrils. And I cooked the yellow peas into like a mash and served it with white fronted goose. So that's kind of our jam is taking, you know, what, what you find around you and, and uh, kind of figuring out what the best culinary mm-hmm. use of it and getting it on a plate. So that was a, that was a bit of a highlight of season seven. That was a keeper, that one. Yeah, that was a good one. I love that. Everything's like full circle, the meat, the you know your deer, the deer are eating on the corn. You have the corn incorporated in, into the bun. I love how it's all just connected. Yeah, and w- one of the things I, I try to encourage people, I, I teach um, foraging. I take people on foraging walks for plant and mushroom ID through from May through October, and I'm usually uh, preaching that we should kind of look at the, the stuff that's under our boots as food. Um, almost always, there's more species that are that are uh, usable in the in the bush or in the wild than than not. So. Uh, we're kind of always looking to to what's you know what what's around and what does Mother Nature have on offer. Uh, we've kind of abandoned the going to a place and looking for a particular species. We'll still do that sometimes, but often, for example, our spring hunt has become yeah it was a spring bear hunt originally, but now uh, the rabbit population is great. We're usually harvesting snowshoe hares. Uh, last spring we were harvesting horsetail and dandelion and fiddleheads and um, fireweed shoots and marsh marigold and on and on and on. And um, so it really has become uh, ecosystem and seasonal driven harvesting, which I would encourage lots of people to kind of 
open their mind to because sometimes you you'll be failing like we were on an elk hunt once and find 40 pounds of mushrooms and shoot a bunch of grouse and just realize you have to stop and smell the roses and change gears and change the tack of your hunt and focus on what actually is there so we've learned that lesson a bunch of times so we really have we really pay attention to that now i was watching the trailer to i believe it was season six and and the woman that you were interviewing i I can't remember her name but she said you know talk about things but those things are everywhere like yeah they're everywhere take advantage of them so yeah i like i like that mindset that was lisa cutcliffe from england you should follow her too she's uh edulous wild foods in in leeds and yeah, she was mentioning exactly that. We were picking nettles and she said people just ignore it because it's everywhere. But that's exactly why you should be eating that stuff is because it's everywhere. So it's a, it's, it's a, yeah, it's a philosophy that we, uh, we carry it with us. It ends up in our show, but we also preach it pretty hard. I think it's a, uh, I like both, I like both those notes and, and thoughts of like, and I, I try to do the same. Um, you know, I'll go out, identify like, Hey, there's a, a primary species I want to go hunt, but it's like, what else is in season at the time? And like, am I going to have time to go fish or like, you know, uh, do they have a lot of States here? Some have two or three day fishing license and some you have to buy the full license. So it's like, you know, what, what kind of commitment do I want to go through, uh, with that? Or if, if we're struggling with weather or fighting other things, it's like it, if we have to choose between hunting or fishing, like usually we're going to lean towards the hunting side um, just because, but I have an example for you. You mentioned Turkey hunting earlier and we don't have, well, I shouldn't say that, but we, we have a very small population of wild turkeys in Alberta. So it's not something we really hunt here. Um, but uh, we went and did that out East with um, a really well-known chef in, in Ontario. And um, we were after a Turkey and weren't doing great at it. But in the meantime, harvested probably six to eight hundred dollars worth of chaga and maybe a couple hundred bucks worth of morels and ramps and pheasant back mushrooms and violets and uh, and all kinds of stuff. It was crazy. And it really was, again, one of those moments where I thought, wow, we really were obsessing about the turkey when there's all kinds of other stuff around that we should probably pay attention to. I've, I've been in the same situation with a friend hunting spring gobbler and we're hurry up and setting down getting set up and you know listening to the turkey gobble and i look around i'm like i'm in all these wild ramps and like i start digging them up and throwing them in my pack as as we're trying to coax that turkey to come in so right on yeah that's a cool um i can't say i'm trying to think i think more it's ended up with me like taking rabbit or squirrels or like shifting gears into into smaller game if i'm focusing on big or i mean as far as like fishing wise, I've I've got a pretty tight knit group down here that we go fishing with. And, and some of the guys are pretty selective about the fish that they will keep. Uh, you know, we're talking saltwater fishing and I'm always the first one to be like, no, like we can use that or, you know, yeah, that's not a trash fish. Like we should definitely be trying it out or like we've caught it. The, you know, it swallowed the hook. Like let's, let's keep it anyway and just give it a go and see if it's good. And, you know, through that, like, we we've discovered we we enjoy we as a family uh enjoy uh some fish that other people are kind of quick to toss and i'm like man you guys are missing out it's just uh you just got to be willing to jump out there and just give it a go so heck yes and same here yeah and I will caveat. I will caveat that though, and I will say that I've also tried some of those fish, and they've been not good. Uh, so, oh, fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. But 
I mean, that could be a fault of my own. Maybe I need to learn how to try to prepare them better. I think it's cool. Yeah, I'm digging it. Yeah, and that humility will go a long way, man. I, I, I actually think that more often than not, that is the case. Is just our our lack of awareness on how to approach them in the kitchen, mm-hmm. and that's again, that's kind of fundamentally what motivates me. Is how do you how do you okay? Fine, it's not an optimal food. It doesn't taste. It's not as tender as beef tenderloin. It doesn't taste like pronghorn. Fine, but what what could you do with it? What what does it work? What direction does it want to be taken? And what cultural lens might make that particular ingredient shine? So that's again the kind of questions we're asking. You said cultural lens. Yeah, we've had chefs. Uh, uh, Amand Dasan, she's a British uh, Indian chef, mm-hmm. so she brought Indian cuisine into the field with us, uh, which brings a whole different layer of spices and flavors and technique. We've worked with um, a chef from Bahrain uh, in the Middle East to bring Middle Eastern flavors to mule deer and sharp tail grouse and that kind of thing. That kind of kind of beg for a little bit more of a a flavor to like to go along with them, not to bury them. I I prefer to think of, you know, spicing something uh, more assertively as kind of meeting it where it's at more than just burying it in flavor. So we've taken, we've taken the wild foods, you know, thing into a few different um, cultural lenses, not just the Canadiana, Western Canadian, you know, food lens. Cool. I I definitely respect that. And, and I was thinking sort of in that, in the same moment, uh, as you mentioned that is looking back sort of in my own errors with maybe not preparing fish and then sort of a way to further learn, uh, from things that may or may not is to look back at different cultures, to look back sort of any history and see how people were preparing or if they were, or we're not preparing this fish, you know, uh, a while ago, because I'm sure, it's evolved and as as culture has evolved as a whole like we've we've dropped foods because we've got the availability of other foods and so maybe finding a an older recipe or something that that mentions it maybe a good maybe a good a good direction to head absolutely yes do you have any other recipes that you're really really digging right now that uh or any that you're testing out playing around with um well, I'm doing I'm doing a ton of research right now on uh, I'm actually getting a, a sea kayak guiding designation um, this summer, so I'll be doing a lot of uh, ocean. I'll be about a month on the ocean this year, and so that's kind of where a lot of my brain's at. But one of the recipes that's kind of coming up, I heard you guys talking about seasonality and being excited for spring and what spring brings. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, um, in the spring, one of my favorite dishes to make is is a chowder, and uh, we're usually eating. Uh, chowder in spring bear camp or or spring camp because um, the last day, the day before spring bear season is ice fishing season close. So we were just sitting on all this fish, you know, canned and frozen and fresh and all pickled and you name it. Uh, so we're eating fish in camp. And, um, and so chowder usually is, is order of the day. Uh, cream in camp is always welcome for the calorie boost. Uh, Fiddleheads and other greens will go into that. Uh, and one of the things that I love putting in that chowder is taking those lake fish that we have here uh, and adding seaweeds from the West Coast into it to kind of give it that marine uh, vibe. Uh, 
which which makes for one heck of a delicious chowder. So we've done that a bunch of times. That's something that I'll be looking forward to. Um, right now, I've just been canning fish and uh, smoking fish, pickling fish. It's that season here. You guys are winding up on your... Uh, it's pretty funny to hear your guys' reality. We still have three feet of ice in the lake, so um, we're not done fishing yet. And we'll be on uh, we'll be on lake trout next. So that's that's what our next episode is, and that's still two weeks from now. Our prime time ice fishing is in March. Okay. And the lakes, ice is off the lakes in uh, kind of late April, May, early May. Nice. Wow. That's uh, I'm thinking like late. I mean, obviously, I'm I'm in like the southern part of the United States, so I, it's a hard comparison for me for any of it. Yeah, you but, are. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm thinking like, man, it's already so it's it's already 81. It's in the 80s here, like steadily now. Um, our our winter is very short lived. Yeah, and we're worried about freezing our butts off on this trip, even with winter gear, because it could be quite cold. So, um. Yeah, Ooh. it's you know it was, it was thirty some below Celsius like two weeks ago here, maybe thirty five below. Holy so it's smokes. it was proper cold recently. Yeah, that is very very cold. Um, I don't want to get hung up because I'll I'll get hung up talking about by disdain for the cold, but it's all right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so let's see. So let's talk a little bit about uh, cooking in the outdoors was something we we wanted to to chat with you about because I, I know you've got some some camps and some educational opportunities set up uh, here in the future but i i kind of want to pick your brain uh a little bit more about just cooking and, and moving cooking over fire and moving in in that direction but um because I know there's a lot of elements that lead up to it, and and one I know not every fire is created equal, and and I want to get sort of some some thoughts from you uh, as far as like woods or woods that you prefer, uh, or is it just anything available? What what would you normally go route wise? Interesting that you ask. Mm, okay, well the easiest way to answer this in this question is to kind of talk about how we teach this stuff um, and why I teach this stuff. I, I, again, I have a busy film career, but the, um, but there was a kind of a gaping hole in Canada uh, of this wild cookery field cookery uh, kind of idea. Um, and I visited a guy by the name of Nick Weston of hunter gatherer cook in England. He's in Sussex and has an amazing um, school that I was able to just go visit and hang out and, and film them and got got inspired to do something similar in Canada. So last year we ran our first year of courses and we'll be doing it again. I teach foraging walks, but our big, huge, long workshop day, uh, I teach people how to cook out of a backpack. So basically like light kit, bush cookers, the little guys, mm-hmm. the little um, secondary gas burner type little bush buddy stove things uh, how to cook out of those uh, use like the little uh, isobutane stoves, um, and again, just kind of light cookery, you're out for the day, uh, hiking, fishing, whatever. Um, how do you make some decent food that wraps in some of the stuff that's in your environment, uh, and make a quick, good meal that's connected to that place in that time? Uh, so that's, that's one part of what we teach the, the, uh, then it goes into our base camp in that space, uh, which has a chef there and a, and our culinary team and we'll run, uh, I guess five courses for them with uh, foraged tea pairings and um, and like uh, foraged cocktails and stuff. And then um, in that we teach pantry building and 
fire cookery in a base camp because when you're base camp cooking you have opportunities to use things like uh you know like a piece of grill or a permanent piece of structure like a rocket stove or uh build a tripod and swing a cast iron uh, dutch oven for a few hours to braise some meat that kind of stuff so um in that location we have to answer your question very indirectly we have uh what i call a wood library it's a gigantic round wood timber uh wood shed that has um, kind of columns in it. And there's a really good picture of it at fromthewild.ca on Instagram. But uh, it's columns of different species of wood so that the chefs that are in camp have an opportunity to cook with either tamarack or white birch or spruce or alder or aspen or whatever. Um, and then we have various smoking woods uh, in there too. So uh, it's it's with the intent of the or the idea of... Um, reconnecting people with this idea that firewood's not just this neutral thing like mm-hmm. propane in a tank on your gas barbecue uh they all have different properties um burning wise but they also have different properties uh flavor and aroma wise um and i would say that people up in canada have a propensity to be using uh woods that you guys use down in the states like hickory and mesquite and that kind of thing to smoke but we don't have those woods here. That has nothing to do with the forest here. So we're trying to encourage people to use, um, you know, the nut woods and the berry woods and and stuff like alder that really does uh, impart beautiful flavor to food. So uh, that's kind of what I teach and um, and how we approach wood uh, at that camp. Nice. So you mentioned sort of equipment wise, uh, having a fixed object if you're cooking out of a base camp. I guess without going too much into i want i want people to go attend your classes not listen to the podcast and get all the goodies for sure no that's fine <laughs> yeah yeah um it's okay people that come to the pod, to the events are just live around here so it's not that's cool. uh, i don't think you're going to ruin my market <laughs> awesome <laughs> um happy to share uh as far as like cooking over the fire looking at special equipment wise uh could you sort of give kind of a range from like the easiest to use to like something more complex that you would use? Like you mentioned sort of tossing a grate using a rock versus like setting up a tripod to, to put a Dutch oven over. Uh, like what? Yeah, I can go, I can do this. Uh, simple example. Um, when Hank Shaw was on in season three um, and he does not cook over fire a lot. Cause as he mentioned, he lives in California. You don't start fires on Mm-mm. purpose. There is how he put it. Nope. Um, so he, he loved it, but I gave him a chunk of rock. And he grilled uh, goose breast and roughed grouse whole skin on on a chunk of slab of rock I'd brought from the Rockies and stuck on the fire. So there's basic. And I would say that one of the advantages of rocks around a campfire is um, they're great for baking potatoes and they're great for uh, like roasting sausages because you don't have any mess. You don't need a grill. You don't need anything. You just put the sausages around your fire and leave them on the rocks. And to clean up the fat and stuff, you kick the rocks into the coals when you're done. Um, I'm a big fan of that style of cookery and we, uh, for most, the most part use sticks and really boring technology because they're, they just work so darn well for most cooking things. And on the complex side, um, when we had, uh, an Indian chef come in, she had requested that we make a tandoor, uh, or asked if it was possible. So we actually built a tandoor out of mud, um, and, and fire bricks and stuff so that she could make naan in the bush. And so that would be on the more complex side. And that would kind of be related to, I've built quite a few um, cob ovens or earth ovens. And 
and those are a good example of if you're if you frequent the same place over and over and over uh, and you've got clay or rock or stone in, in the area uh, you can build permanent structures like ovens uh, in those in those spaces so right now we rely heavily on rocket stoves and i would really recommend looking that up if you want kind of a, a fuel efficient tidy nice fire safe way to cook in the forest at a, at a base camp uh, like a brick rocket stove is a really great option. And again, our, our Instagram's got photos of that. We cook with it a lot. Cool. Um, so let's, I guess, talk uh, as far as like what, what to do and what not to do when, when approaching cooking. Like what are, what are some definite no-nos that you would tell people? Like obviously a, a prime example is like with Hank Shaw, like we don't start fires in California on, on purpose. Um, so kind of moving those out, any, any tips or tricks that you would share? Huh. Um, well, yeah, I mean that basic fire safety one, I know you want to dodge it, but it's actually really super important. Mm -hmm. Um, only, only in that you have to be prepared, uh, accordingly in case there's a fire ban here. That's, that's act. That's for sure a thing, especially in the spring, it can get dry in May here when we're in the bush. So, uh, there is a very decent chance that when you go out, you won't even be able to start a fire. So if your entire plan's built around, fire cookery you better have a backup plan um so that's kind of step one uh other than that it's kind of uh simple stuff like have multiple skills to start a fire because i've been in in the field many times with very competent people where starting a fire has been a major problem because it just poured rain and everything is soaked you're surrounded by hundreds of kilometers of trees and forest and tinder and everything but it's all wet to the point where you just cannot start it so I my I have a fire kit that's got um, dry birch bark in it all the time. Everywhere I go, doesn't matter what kind of thing, because I've just been on the wrong end of it too many times. Um, and that, and uh, have other skills if your lighter doesn't work or your ferro rod's lost or broken or whatever. So we've done an episode where we went winter camping in middle of February. You wouldn't want to go on that when it was like really cold. The trees were popping in the cold, and. Uh, and we didn't bring a lighter. We didn't bring anything. We skidooed in and then we parked the sled. Got, the sled got stuck in a snowbank. So we snowshoed back into this birch forest and uh, with and we found some chaga and got some cattail and hand drilled a fire. So while that's not oh, wow. something you need to know how to do all the time, um, those are those are handy skills to be able to to at least have in your head if you get if you get stuck and need to get, get out of a bind. Now, beyond that, I would say that the simple cookery that people do on fire is generally uh, going to be centered around meat cookery. And if we're talking specifically around meat cookery, uh, my best advice I can give you is make sure that you temper your meat. Okay. Maybe two or three key por- points here. You temper your meat before it's a culinary term for letting things warm up. Mm-hmm. You do not want ice cold or cold meat going onto a grill. Don't cook it we've got this idea that we have to sear red meat all the time. That is not necessarily the case. Uh, cook it, go easy, go on some medium heat. Um, and, uh, and then let it rest. Once you've got it to a doneness with your finger that you're happy. Uh, I know people make fun of all these steps, but especially resting, it's like it's voodoo or something. People just really resist this idea of resting meat, but it is a thing. It's one of the reasons why you go to fancy restaurants and their meats doneness is impeccably perfect. It's because they actually pay attention to these fundamentals of don't cook your meat ice cold, cook it mm-hmm. good and slow and just be really attentive to it and then let it rest. Uh, those are things people really, really, really get wrong. And lastly, I'd say around fire cookery is meal planning is usually something people screw up pretty hard and don't think about 
they usually think about stuff that can go into pots and pans and make a gigantic mess. And they don't usually think about things that are maybe grilled that don't make a mess, like skewered vegetables and a steak. Uh, I'll be, I'll sign up for dishes on that in the field. But if you, I've had people make, you know, multiple sauces and pans, fried meats and then bacon and stuff. It's just a gigantic disaster of cleanup in a place that's very difficult to do cleanup. And sometimes water is scarce. So I'd really recommend planning your menu to begin with around uh, the type of fire cookery that you're going to be doing to make your life easy. And I don't mean to be lazy, be smart, Mm -hmm. but you can be smart and also adapt to the working space uh, or the the constraints that you're going to have in the field. Yep, we we had to pull a, a a quick change in plans the other day when we were going out to film, and and we had to shuffle from actually a plan to cook over the fire to using a, a camp stove to cook with, and so you know we quickly changed, and it also turned into like, well, now the camp stove kind of opens up opens up the opportunity, and then my mind started going down this rabbit hole of like I can make some elaborate sauces and all this, and then like. Well, then I'm carrying like a plastic tote of utensils and pots and pans on a boat. And I'm like, no, this is this is not where I need to be. And so uh, I brought it back and, and found a very simple, straightforward sauce to just pair with the fish. And that was it. And I was like, guys, we're just going to eat fish and a few sauteed vegetables, everything out of one pan. And that's it. And they're like, awesome. And uh, I went out on a limb with the sauce and it, it came out great. And it was super super pleased so right on what was it what was the sauce uh so i I took a a rum i took cuban rum and sauteed garlic and onion with in butter poured the rum which i'd also mixed with some honey and then put lime in there too nice got sweet you got acid yeah i like it yeah and it was uh proportionate enough because i was really nervous that you know you think rum and honey and butter you're like oh that's the perfect dessert sauce and i was like there's got to be yeah. I'm, I'm gonna try to use the lime to sort of uh to to cut the sweet and just add another element of depth in there and it uh with the fish we prepared it just came through like amazingly so it's pretty strange. right on well done yeah thanks well let's see Corey. Did you, you had a question i see a note on here well, I, I want to talk about his his favorite. I want to talk about Kevin's favorite meals or dishes over the fire. Cook over the fire quite a bit, so I want to know the the best ones, your favorite ones. Okay, mm, that's a tricky one. <laughs> oh boy, yeah. I think technical accomplishment wise, like some of the 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 fussiest stuff I've seen, uh, that would that's really hard to do. I think I mentioned Hank Shaw and that. You know, just plucking a grouse to begin with never and to keep the skin intact. Uh, he's very good at that, and that's hard to do. And then roasting that bird whole over a rock and then getting the doneness inside perfect and the skin crispy. Try that. That's not easy to do. And it's delicious when you're in the field, you want to eat that. Um, okay, one of my favorite seasonal things i'm gonna i'm gonna let it myself be guided by that uh, i mentioned the chowder in the spring in the fall and september one of my favorite things to eat cooked over fire in our camp is uh the first roughed grouse of the season with shaggy mane mushrooms and cream and garlic that's one thing that just kind of i don't eat it any other time of year it's just that one moment and it i just love it um i would also say fire uh i just can't help but think of smoke I just spent a fair amount of time. I had a lake trout from the Northwest Territories that was, uh, I guess, of uh, 15, 16 pounds and uh, smoked half of it. And uh, 
delicious. Like smoking things in the field is again, something I don't think we think enough about when we think about cooking over fire. Uh, smoke is such a critical component of that. Um, and it can be a bit tricky to get smoke to show up because we're, you know, your clothes are covered in smoke and your hair smells like smoke and it doesn't really, it's hard to actually taste it in your food. But um, I would say that, you know, give, give smoking food some thought. Other favorites over fire, man, we do it so much. It's hard to even peg what, um, peg which ones would be even cooked over fire uh from i'll pick one from our field cookery camps last year um cooked over fire oh well and this kind of comes with a lesson we had a elk braise uh in dutch ovens we were feeding 16 people and had two dutch ovens full of elk shoulder and learned from the chef that time around and the elk shoulder turned out perfect and it was bubbling hard and i thought yeah this is going to be some boiled meat and it was actually excellent and the lesson of the day from the chef was that uh water only gets to a certain temperature so as long as you keep uh a braise fully hydrated that your your meat doneness will be or your meat texture will be spot on every time as soon as you let that water get out of that that braise if it's bucking pretty hard then that's when you when you fail so uh that would be kind of like a, a highlight from last fall so i don't know i mean on and on and on on it goes. We do a lot of fire cookery, so so I'll have to leave it there. <laughs> and one of and one of your uh, Instagram posts, uh, you had a hike in dining table. So I'll elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, when we built the field cookery camp that we teach, um, when I bought that land, we talked about putting a parking lot in there and and a gravel driveway and stuff, and just decided forget that like. I'm going to pave paradise here. And so we'll just leave it as some, you just walk in. So we have a, we have a, we have a really solid, well-equipped kitchen for a, a bush kitchen uh, that you have to walk. You have to get in on your boots. There is never been a quad or a truck or a nothing that has been in there. It's all every piece of lumber and timber and tree and nail and screw and plate and everything has been hauled in by yours truly. And uh, so folks have to actually hike into this table before they can sit down and taste the things that come from that forest. So the idea was, and I I guess the context is that I have spent the better part of a decade pointing cameras at the local food movement and farm to table dinners and all all manner of kind of the uh, deeper exploration of that into the world of wild foods and people trying to make really cool culinary activations and experiences. And often they fall short because, um, for a variety of reasons, let's just put it that way. And and often it's because there's a disconnect with actual hunting and fishing and foraging and the culinary space. They kind of live in very separate worlds most of the time, other than for, for some, for some chefs, not, but for the most part, yes. So uh, I decided that I want, I don't want, you know, tourists from and food writers from Germany and Holland who I do have out on my events coming and, and going to an event where they pretend they're under the stars. I want them to actually be under the stars and I don't mm-hmm. want them to, you know, pretend to eat food from that area in the forest. I want them to actually be in the forest and smell the forest and, the dining room's actually set in uh, on the top of the hill and it's the whole hill's covered in hazelnut and blueberries. So our first, you know, dessert was a, a, a blueberry. Oh, it was actually a corn ice cream, but with blueberry cooked blueberries and hazelnut pralines. So we're really folding the ingredients that are that surround that table into the menu. So that, that was the idea. And um, 
while COVID has meant that culinary activations are very much not so much a thing right at the moment, um, our field cookery camps have proceeded, but kind of our long table dinner plans that we had originally uh, thought of doing there have been abandoned and I don't even want to do them anymore. Um, our field cookery camps are great and we have great people out there and I want to keep it that way. So, um, so that's what we do. It's a, it's a table that can accommodate 40 in the middle of a, a forest that you have to walk in and get on your boots and get in there or you just don't get to eat there. That's awesome. We, uh, we, we participated in a, a similar, uh, so event I'm trying to think as outstanding in the field, I think is one of the companies that runs here in the States. Uh, they came down to the Florida keys and did sort of a Florida keys, uh, special where that we, we worked with, uh, some of the local lobster men, uh, some of the shrimp and fisher, uh, fishermen. Um, actually one of them, uh, we had on the podcast in our very first season, he was one of, one of the few, people in the Florida Keys that has a commercial spearfishing operation. So uh, that was, that was pretty neat to learn about that. And then later sort of connect all the dots together. Very cool. And we were, my wife and I uh, at the time owned a hydroponic vegetable farm down here in Key West and we provided uh, the greens and stuff for it. So uh, it, it was pretty, it was, it was a wonderful event, but it opened my eyes to sort of those long table style dinners. And I really, really appreciate those. They're so much fun. Yeah, they are. And it's something that uh, I'm sure we'll be back once things are back to normal. So yeah, normal ish, whatever that is. Yeah. <laughs> whatever, whatever it's going to be in the future. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Could, could you talk a little bit about uh, the web series from the wild? Uh, give us a little, I know we've mentioned it several times and, and you've, uh, you've alluded to it, but uh, sort of maybe a little more detail. I think the, the listeners would enjoy yeah, uh, from the wild was um, at the time I started it. The I was working a lot in agriculture in the local food kind of space, slow food here. And at the time, there was a gaping hole in, as I mentioned, in the world of of kind of like culinary food and and wild things. So started the series uh, again. I mentioned we're in season eight now. So mm-hmm. started way back when, a number of years ago. Um, and the premise is pretty simple. Um, we go throughout all the seasons. So we are in the winter, spring, summer, and fall uh, looking for, you know, anything basically in various ecosystems that we can explore uh, culinarily. So the end destination is uh, always uh, a, a plate of food um, uh, or multiple, depending on how many chefs we have and how long we're out in the field. But uh, it's pretty much that simple. Uh, we've certainly learned a heap along the way. And I would say that the whole project has been a very personal, uh, journey. It's almost diary esque. That's definitely not prescriptive. It's not like, here's how you hunt and here's how you cook food. It's really more just watching me and all my food industry friends kind of figure shit out and go, (laughs) okay, well, we don't know. We don't know what to do with this, but I kind of know what it tastes like because I just put it in my mouth and I, have some ideas what that kind of tastes like and reminds me of and what works in that space and then combining flavors and ideas and um, coming up with something that really uh, speaks to the time that we have out in the field together with our friends. So that's what the series is about. Um, It covers everything from ice fishing to spring bear, as we mentioned in foraging Um, lots of fruit, lots of berries, lots of um, greens and mushrooms. Uh, We've done a lot of mixology in season seven. So lots of cocktail stuff. 
uh, and lots of big game hunting. So I, I think in season four, uh, I was just cutting it because it had to be released uh, for television here. And um, I think at the close of season four, we had harvested 18 big game animals between two or three guys. So we do a lot of big game hunting and uh, are live in a place where you can get a lot of tags. So uh, we definitely have done our share of that in the last number of years. So this year, a bit of a pivot. We're doing, uh, I'm doing a lot more ocean mm-hmm. episodes. So we'll probably do four or five out of 10 that are, that are actually out of the ocean and kind of the big kudos. As you mentioned, we had a James Beard nomination, which is a big deal in the United States. Yeah. Congrats. Um, congrats for that. That's huge. To be a Canadian there is quite something. And then the last time I was there in New York, uh, we, I was up against uh, Chef's Table uh, from Netflix and CNN's Parts Unknown with Bourdain. So there was the three of us there. So that's pretty big names to be pretty big company. So it, that was a huge honor. Um, and it's, yeah, and just, just kind of plugging forward, man. It's been a pay-per-view series since day one. Um, and I've kind of reveled in keeping it there in that, We've had no censorship, no sponsorship, no nothing. We just really could roll our own, show the side of food that's kind of ugly sometimes, like gutting and blood and guts and nasty stuff that uh, no broadcaster at the time would have anything to do with and really have kind of genuine conversations around food and and kind of pick up the story where a lot of hunting shows and fishing shows had left off, which is like, here's the fish, here's the the rack of the buck I shot. And, and leaving food people thinking, yeah, but then what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> then what happened? <laughs> you don't get to see that in, in uh, ever, a kind of. And, and in this season seven, I mean, I've, I'm like shoulder deep gutting animals like over and over and over and over and over. It's just part of the show and part of the process. So again, that kind of uncensored approach has been really, really helpful for keeping us creatively on track. And I think creating some good content that's, that's pretty unique. I think that's that's yeah that's awesome too and and to have the the freedom of creativity I think speaks to it because um uh, it's unfortunate a lot of times when sponsors and other things start coming in and start to kind of uh, alter content especially in the in the world where uh you know hunting and fishing meet and you know there's the connection to the to the dirty bits the the parts that make people uncomfortable and some people don't want to you know. Uh, support that because they may be part of that population and i mean people get uneasy around it it's okay but it's it's still part of the process like so i i respect your incorporation yeah as it is in the world of agriculture so i think hiding from that is being really naive and is is it kind of a cultural deficit it's not to our advantage to not be aware of how animals are handled before we eat them as food we, if, if there's any, any relationship with any food that we should have the most connection to and the most awareness around, it should be the animals that we kill to eat. So, uh, so yeah, it was, it's become, it's been really important to us from, from day one. Awesome. Well, what's the, um, as far as getting into the pay-per-view and watching it, where, where should people go to, to see it, uh, the series? Um, all of it's streamed through Vimeo. Uh, they handle all the distribution. So the easiest way to track us down is from the wild.ca. That's our website. And it's got, um, all of our, all of our seasons are just linked through very simple buttons through to all the different season pages for all, season one through six. We're about to release season seven in the next two or three weeks. And we're starting to shoot season eight right away. So, nice. uh, from the wild.ca. 
Nice. And we'll, uh, we'll throw the link in the show notes as well, uh, as always. And then, um, as far as people connecting with you, uh, if, if they want to follow your journey in this journey and, uh, sort of, uh, maybe if they have questions or interested in, in, in field cookery or anything like that, what's a good way to, to connect with you? I'm pretty active on Instagram, uh, at from the wild CA is the, is our Instagram account. I'm at Kevin Coswin on Instagram and, uh, happy to engage there, answer questions there. And, uh, yeah, and the people can follow there. That's probably the easiest. We're also on Facebook and all the social media handles are, are, you can find through from the wild. Sweet. Um, all right. Well, we're kind of coming to the end of the, the conversation here and we always have sort of a, a chance for misfires, alibis, or last notes. Any last thoughts that you may have uh, for us or for the guests, please uh, feel free to share. Okay, I have a question for you, Mr. Florida. Uh-oh. <laughs> what's, what, what's kind of the cultural norm down there for fire cookery? I mean, I know what it is here, and I'm very familiar with it here, but I have no idea what what you guys, how you would barbecue or grill in your backyard is it hardwood charcoal or propane and when you have campfires what do you burn and what do you smoke with stuff like that um so it's a very good question uh i'll 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 lead off with telling you that i've only been here in california or california i've only been here in florida for about five years um prior to that i was in california and and i'm originally from oklahoma um but as far as so where i live i live in the florida keys and it's very um, it's very restrictive on where you can and can't have campfires when you're out because it's a lot of national preserves. And, uh, like we have the great white herring reserve and, uh, the Florida keys bird sanctuary, I think is the full name, but it kind of encompasses the majority of it. But as you get up into the regular part of Florida and, and start to interact in, in normal, um, I'll be really honest as far as like, I, I don't know a lot about the traditions with over the fire cooking within Florida. And man, that's, it's a good point for me for some homework for sure. <laughs> um, just thinking like the times that I've gone out, uh, we haven't, cause it's, it's off, it's very wet here. Uh, the majority of the time and humid and rains off and on. So we often, take firewood with us uh, versus going out and getting it. So that sort of play into that element of not, but um, I mean, you have palm here. I wouldn't say palms would be a, a good wood to cook over. Um, and then the Everglades is a pretty unique ecosystem with what's available there. You have different oaks and, and other types of trees, pines and others as well too. So I don't know. Um, it's a piece of homework for me for sure. Do you have hardwoods down there? We do have hard, yeah. Okay. Not as much in the Florida Keys. Like we do get some. So down here they get little strips of uh, of of tree areas called hammocks. Is basically you could they would classify as um, because the the salinity in the soil uh, in the Florida Keys is is very high, and it's a lot of like mixed coral rock and stuff. So it's hard. There's only a, a select number of plants that can grow here. Uh, as you get up into main parts of Florida, like obviously the ecosystems change and soil types are are very productive and, and good for growth. But yeah, there's hardwoods in throughout Florida, not as much in the Keys though. Interesting. So 
smoking, what would you guys smoke with? What kind of wood? Um, I, I like a lot of the fruit woods. Um, so I, I try to get my hands on on uh, just about any fruit wood that I can. I know that we will get like apple and stuff brought in. Um, I haven't played around as much with some of the tropical woods, uh, tropical fruit woods, but I, I should more. Interesting. I mean, I live in a place, the boreal forest, where it starts. It goes for, I would have to drive for uh, 14 hours, before, maybe 16, before I hit like Yellowknife. And that's where the, the boreal forest starts to end and the tundra begins. So we're talking like, I don't know, a, a thousand miles of, of forest. Wow. And we can have four fire, fires anywhere any, in that space. And um, we're the northern, yeah. we're the largest northernmost city in North America in Edmonton. So there's really nothing north or east or west of us that's bigger. So got to, being able to burn stuff here and have fires is pretty, I, I take it for granted. Let's just say that. And I do yeah. find it interesting when you have different, entirely different plants, like where you live. Sounds fascinating. Like that's totally different than where I live. So, um, and that's the beauty of it, man. So you come visit mm-hmm. me and I have completely different things that, you know, our, our foods would be different based on how we burn stuff, uh, which yep. I think is just fascinating. And, and part of the discussion, by the way, of foraging in general, because foraging, I think when you talk about foraging, people think of berries like blueberries and morels. But, um, but foraging to me means everything from tree sap to, to firewood, to, um, you know, to greens, uh, salad greens, cooked greens, uh, you name it. Foraging is pretty broad and, and firewood is just part of the foraging spectrum. So anyway, it's just obviously keenly interested. I could listen to you talk about Florida all day because it's such a different planet. Oh, and our show Wild Harvest is in Florida, by the way, on the PBS station. Florida is one of the places that was the most supportive of, of the show early on. The PBS station is down down there so um less droughts wild harvest is for sure on pbs in florida oh yeah awesome we'll make sure uh we, we put some notes in there about that as well cool uh well Corey, do you have a last comment or note thank you kevin for coming on and talking with us it's i think it's been a a great conversation i always love talking about food so yeah no problem man me too thanks for having me <laughs> i appreciate you coming on it was an awesome conversation and like uh, you said I could continue talking. Uh, I, I try to picture a lot of the environment of, of where you live in the forest and just being out and surrounded completely by trees and just doing a whole uh, over the fire cooking and just it, it gets me excited. So um, I'm I think I'm ready to head back north a little bit and, and spend more time in the woods versus on the islands. So uh, there's more to come on that. But um for everybody else out there, thanks for listening. And uh, as always, our, our show notes will be online. And uh, you know, make sure you're, you're you're following Kevin on social media. Go check out his profiles. And uh, go check out From the Wild, too. Uh, pretty interesting show. Pretty interesting uh, idea. And take a journey to the plate, which is cool. So um, outside of that... Uh, Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast and uh, punch that five-star button. Leave us a review. Tell us what we're doing wrong or tell us what we're doing right. And we thank everybody and have a good night.
Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. In Wild Country, rules were not created by man. Don't miss Wild Country, Wednesdays from 7 to 11 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Primos. Speak the language. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.